something is wrong, and it's time to stand up. You are listening to the John Age Show. Trust no one. Trust no one. Trust no one. You found it. You're here. You're headlong down the runaway train that is the Anomic Age. And I'm your host, John Age. Happy to be back with you again in the not-so-wee hours at a p.m. today. For once. Not not coming at you in the nighttime. We got Chuck Holton coming up in just a few moments, so stick around for that. But in case you have not already done so, please check out anomicage.com. Share the links, friends, family, loved ones, and enemies. Like all the likes. Subscribe to all the subscriptions. If you scroll down to the bottom there, it's paypal.me forward slash anomicage, patreon.com forward slash anomicage as well. You got the free newsletter, iPhone app, Android app, so much more. Every single video and audio interview I've ever done is at anomicage.com. So if you can't find them on social media, they've probably taken it down, but it should be there at anomicage.com. Chuck Holton is a former U.S. Army Ranger. International reporter, adventurer, businessman, and most importantly, a husband and father of five homeschooled children. Chuck hosts The Hot Zone with Chuck Holton. That's going to be found at chuckholton.locals.com. And I'm happy to bring Chuck Holton with us today. Thank you so much, Chuck, for being with us. I know it's been it's been hard to get a hold of you, but for good reason. You're actually there. You're in the Ukraine. Or not right at this moment, I should say, but pretty darn close. I no, I'm in Ukraine. I'm All in right. Kiev at the moment, <clears throat> and um, I guess you could say I was the father of five homeschooled kids, but they're all graduated now. Oh man, <laughs> last one just left the house. Oh geez, yeah. So uh, empty nest, man. Well, still a father nonetheless. So happy Father's Day in advance, right That's around right. the corner. Yeah, it is. Well, I'm so blessed to have you on the program. I'm so blessed to have someone that's, I mean, to to borrow that time-worn phrase, boots on the ground, but you're literally boots on the ground doing that firsthand reporting in these hot zones of the Ukraine right now. So I think there's so much discrepancy over what we get spun here in the U.S. media and what's really going on, why we're there, why we're not there, what what this whole stinking thing all about. So I guess if you could just give us... Your uh, your boots on the ground perspective is what you're seeing, and you know how does that jive up with what we're getting told over here in the U.S. Because I know it ain't the, it ain't what well, you're, you're seeing. A, no, that's true. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I took issue with that today, even with one of the hosts of the show that I one of the shows that I was on uh, earlier today. Uh, you're getting a lot of sort of partial information, and I I. I get it there's a ton of stuff going on in the united states a lot of people are saying why should they even care about what's happening in the ukraine i understand uh, how people feel um and maybe we can talk a little bit about why people ought to care about what's going on in the ukraine but what what people need to know first and foremost is that uh you're you're hearing right now that russia is making continuous incremental gains in the east they're slowly but surely pushing their way into Ukraine and are uh, eventually it's sort of a, um, a foredrawn conclusion that eventually they will uh, defeat the Ukrainians and will take over this country. That mm-hmm. could not be further from the truth. Uh, Ukraine is holding its own admirably, amazingly against a much superior force, uh, superior in terms of numbers, but not in terms of spirit. And because of that, uh, you, Russia has not been able to make any significant gains at all in this country in more than a, well, probably a couple of months, actually. Uh, they are right now, the Russians, losing ground almost everywhere. Hmm. Uh, the Ukrainians are pushing the Russians out of the north and they're pushing them out of the south. They're making uh, inroads from Mykolaiv toward Kherson and pushing the, the Russians out of their positions there. And they are 
increasingly pushing them away from Kharkiv so that they can't uh, continue to shell that city. Uh, the the Russians never got within range, striking distance of of Kiev. They they, you know, there's two zones. You got to understand. There's there's the zone that they can hit with their artillery, which is 30 or 40 kilometers from their front line, from the from the line of contact. Uh, anywhere within 30 or 40 kilometers, uh, they can shell with artillery. A lot of what you've heard on the news is that they were shelling Kiev or they're shelling this city or shelling that city. They're not. Um, they they have hit, they can hit anywhere in this country with a rocket. They've done rocket attacks in many places around the country and they've rocketed Kiev um, quite a bit. But that's not shelling. And the difference is, they have a very finite supply of rockets. They have an almost infinite supply of artillery. And so if they get close enough to actually shell a city, like they did in Mariupol, like they did in Kherson, like they did in Sumy, and um, that, like they are currently doing in Severodonetsk, they will pulverize those cities into dust because they they don't want to risk their troops so they just bomb and bomb and bomb and bomb with their their artillery until there's nothing left to fight fight back and then they just roll in there that's their their modus operandi but they have not been able to get close enough to Kiev to do that they they never got within 30 miles of Kiev um hmm. I, I say Kiev proper they've they they got right up to the uh border of the Kiev Oblast, uh, the province of Kiev, uh, but they didn't, they didn't penetrate it other than, uh, and, except for one time when, and they just got their heads handed to them uh, when they did. So uh, the Russians have not done a very good job with this conflict and they are losing this conflict day after day. Now the Ukrainians are vastly outnumbered. They're vastly outgunned. We saw a example last week in the east where the Russians had decided to take this small village of uh, it had once held maybe twenty thousand people. There were only five hundred defenders in that village. Everybody else had had evacuated, and those five hundred defenders held off ten thousand Russian troops for more than two weeks, and then the Russians finally gave up because they had taken so many losses. They estimate now and we're talking about the united states military estimates the pentagon is estimating that the russians have lost now somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of their total armored capability their entire military armored capability almost 30 percent almost one third of it is gone wow so uh, that is the kind of thing that's not being told and uh, you're hearing over and over again, that I, I think because it's dramatic that these news anchors want to go, the Russians are continuing their push into Ukraine. They're not. They're not able to. They have they had their combat power spread out among a, a front that was from the north of this country to the south, very large country, bigger than about the size of Texas, I guess. Mm -hmm. And they had spread out over the on three sides. And they were just losing everywhere. So they refocused on a tighter area and kept losing, refocused on a tighter area and kept losing. Now they've got literally all of their combat power, uh, offensive combat power, focused on one city of 100,000 people called Severodonetsk. And they're still not able to make gains. Uh, they are, they'll, they'll take a, a couple of blocks and then they'll lose them. They'll take them and then they'll, they'll lose them. The, the Ukrainian military is begging, begging for long, long range, uh, artillery because right now in order to strike at the Russians, they have to get within that 30 kilometer zone I talked about mm -hmm. and they'll just get, they just get pulverized by the Russian military, uh, Russian armor. I, I'm sorry, the Russian uh, artillery just get pulverized by them. And so the Ukrainians are taking 100 or 200 casualties a day uh, because of that. If we would give them the ammunition they need, they already have the 
firepower. They they have the artillery pieces they need, but it, they don't have the right ammunition. The United States has given them these M777 howitzers, and these things, a, a typical round for these things goes about 30, 40 kilometers. So they have to get within range of the Russian artillery in order to shoot the Russian artillery. And that becomes a, I mean, the Russians got to have a lot more artillery than than we do, that or the Ukrainians do. And but, I'm thinking this is not the most mobile of weapons, right? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, they're called an ultralight howitzer, but they're still like 35,000 pounds each. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they take a big truck to pull them around. Mm -hmm. They're wheeled, you know, they're the kind that are they, the, the front of the, the barrel of the howitzer has a hook on it that goes on the pintle of the back of a you know, seven ton mm -hmm. truck and they can, and it's got wheels on it. They just jack up the, the legs and off they go. Gotcha. So they are mobile, but not, I mean, they're still hard to haul around. You wouldn't do it with your F-150. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. um, but there are rocket assisted rounds that the United States has for these weapons that can extend their range up to something like 110 kilometers which means that they could stay, stay double the distance of the Russian range away from the Russians and still pound the Russians with high-precision weapons that are GPS-guided that could take out Russian armor. Not only that, we have, we've already given them the systems. Um, they, well, we've promised them. We have, they haven't showed up yet. or they're being, I guess they're being trained on these now. Mm -hmm. But they're counter-battery radar. So we have these radar systems for people that don't aren't familiar with how those work. We have these radar systems that are tied to an automatic howitzer. So it's tied to a howitzer that's got uh, computer-controlled uh, movements to adjust the range and everything of the howitzer, okay? Mm -hmm. And the howitzer sits there loaded, ready to fire. And when that radar picks up... Uh, a Russian artillery piece firing a, a round, literally within about a second, it calculates the trajectory of that round and backtracks it to its source so it knows exactly where the piece is that fired it, swivels that howitzer that's loaded and fires it at that spot. Hmm. And so they, they don't even have time to move their howitzer when it gets blown up every time they fire at, at, at an artillery round at Ukrainian forces, once they get these things in place, they will lose that piece. Whatever mm -hmm. fired it will be blown up. And we employed these in Iraq and Afghanistan to great effect. Mm -hmm. So all we need is to give them the rounds that they need to outrange the Russians so that they don't have to drive up and park within range of those guys. And they will just smoke the Russians left and right, and they'll be able to push them out of their country. Now, as it stands, they have been able to fight the Russians to a standstill, and there's heavy, heavy fighting in there now. But they can only do that for so long because they don't have enough ammunition. So what they need is ammo. Now, a lot of people, and again, you've heard this on the news quite a bit, that the United States uh, Congress voted to authorize $40 billion for Ukraine recently. This yeah. large package was voted for them. And so I've heard a lot of people in the states that have said, well, we've given them $40 billion, or it's actually closer to $50 billion now. Given them $40 billion, I mean, how much do they want? Why do they keep asking for more? I mean, gosh, yeah. they're ingrateful. Well, here's the problem with that. Of that $40 billion, very little of it will actually help Ukraine. Most of it is designed to help the United States. And actually, none of it, none of that $40 billion has actually reached the troops in Ukraine yet. So the troops in Ukraine are saying, we need ammo. Send us ammo. Of that $40 billion, $21 billion, more than half, isn't even authorized until future fiscal years going all the way out to 2031. So cut cut out half of that right now because that's not even going to be available to them in this fiscal year. Four billion dollars of that goes uh, of what's left of the 19 billion that's left goes 
to the United States military to pay for U.S. troops who are currently being stationed in Poland and Romania and other places like that. So the additional troops that we have moved over to Europe to sort of bolster NATO, mm-hmm. that's getting paid for out of this $40 billion. That doesn't go to yes. Ukraine. doesn't help Ukraine. Okay. Now, $2 billion of that goes to reimburse NATO allies for giving their stuff to Ukraine in the past. So they've already given Ukraine everything from bulletproof vests, helmets, grenade launchers, machine guns, uh, to tanks and armored personnel carriers. The United States taxpayer is on the hook to pay them back for all that stuff that they gave to Ukraine. So essentially all of the stuff that has come from the West is being paid for by the United States of America. Uh, why why we have to reimburse our, our allies for stuff that they want to give to Ukraine is beyond me. But not only are they being reimbursed for so so Poland gives that gives Ukraine a T-72 tank. And then the United States gives Poland the money to replace it with an American tank and a better tank. <laughs> that doesn't make any okay. sense. Nine billion of the 19 billion that's left that that's actually available now, nine billion of that goes directly to the Pentagon to pay the Pentagon back for the stuff that they've already given to Ukraine that Ukraine already has. But they only gave Ukraine three point three billion. So why are they getting nine billion? Well, because they're trying to upgrade. They're getting more money. Uh, so they can get better toys. So they gave their toys to Ukraine. Now so it's like it's like you give your old Subaru with two hundred thousand miles on it to your kid, and then you go out and buy a Mercedes. That's that's hey, what's happening. It's even so worse again, than robbing Peter not- to pay Paul. You're you're just robbing Peter, paying right. Paul, and then upgrade. And they're making this sound like we just gave forty bi- a check for forty billion dollars to Ukraine. We didn't. It's not going to Ukraine. There's hundreds of millions of dollars in this bill for research on human trafficking, for um, you know thing, things that have nothing to do with, well, I would say only ancillarily have things to do with Ukraine. I mean, there, there may be some human trafficking taking place with the refugee flow, so okay. But, uh, and, and I mean, on and on and on. There, so, so Ukraine actually, how much ammo does Ukraine get out of this this package as far as i can tell exactly zero okay now some of it goes uh, there's there's billions of dollars that will go towards helping giving humanitarian aid to ukraine but that doesn't include the ammo that they need to push russia out uh some of it will go to actually ukrainians to come to the States and live. Well, I don't think we need to be doing that either. No. Uh, if if we want to help Ukraine defeat Russia, so that Ukraine, you know, the six million Ukrainians who have fled can turn around and go back to their country and rebuild their country, we don't need to be bringing them to the United States, and we don't need to be paying to bring them to the United States. One of my drivers that I had down in Mykolaiv a few weeks ago just texted me and said that he and his wife got accepted into a program called U for You, that is. A U.S. government program that will fly him and his whole family over to the United States and pay for them, pay for an apartment, give them a stipend so that they can get their feet under them and help them get started in Salt Lake City, Utah. Is this coming out of that okay, 40 plus so billion or is this another is. slush fund? It is. Okay. No, this is coming out of the 40 billion. All right. So, again, that may help a few Ukrainians, but it's not helping Ukraine defeat Russia. It's not giving Ukraine what they need to defeat Russia. Now, before we did the 40 billion, there were a bunch of other allotments that did give weapons to Ukraine, the M777 howitzers that we've given them and the things like that, okay? So they, they've gotten plenty of stuff from us. The switchblade suicide drones that we gave them and the javelins and all that, those made a huge difference, huge difference. But they're they're running out of those already. Okay, all of those that we've given them, they've, they've been spread out around the country. They still have a, a, about a 900-mile front in which they've got to spread out all of their stuff, their, their military hardware. And so they've, they've used up, they've smoked 
30% of the Russian armor that, that, that Russia had, the second largest military in the world. They've used a lot of javelins. I saw, I saw today the results of some of those things. Hmm. So they need more. And they need they need that right now this is becoming an artillery battle. And so they need longer range artillery and the kind of rockets, the, the MLRS rockets that they've been asking for. High Mars, you know, those things. Uh, the, the problem with the jet assisted artillery rounds, they we have given them a few of those. They don't have very many. But the problem with them is that those 777s can only fire like one or two rounds a minute of those instead of like 18 to 20 rounds a minute of conventional artillery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they need either need a lot more guns or they need some long range missiles. And um, this new allotment of a billion dollars, actually, I think it's just a release of a billion dollars that was already authorized. So it's not adding to the total of what we're, we're spending on Ukraine, but it's releasing it faster is supposed to go towards giving them some ammunition, finally. Because, if, look, and I had I had a guy when we were out on the front line last week say this to me, and he, I, I thought, man, that's profound. He said, the only thing that would be worse for America than spending $40 billion on this war would be to spend $40 billion and then not spend the rest that you need to spend in order to let us win. So if you spend $40 billion on this and we still lose, you might as well have not given us anything. That's true. Right? Which, you know, I okay, I get it. It makes sense. And $40 billion sounds like a heck of a lot of money when gas is five bucks a gallon and when the food prices are going up and, and we don't have baby formula in the United States. They do have baby formula over here. Of uh, but that's not Ukraine's fault. <laughs> Okay, you can't you can't blame that on Ukraine. You got to blame that on Joe Biden for for screwing it up in the U.S. They haven't done anything wrong over here to have baby formula. But I guess what's frustrating to me is that because of the shoddy reporting that the media has done on this, and because there are there's a subculture of people in the United States, especially among U.S. conservatives, who think, you know. Joe Biden is saying we've got to support Ukraine. Therefore, I have to be against it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think that we have to do a thought experiment here, and we have to just ask ourselves in in several different categories: uh, what's the right thing to do, or what's the least wrong thing to do? Maybe. And number one, always should be: what's the right thing to do morally? What's to, what's just right? Gotcha. And yeah. if if a if a bully, if if you're you know the people that live across the street from you get mad at the neighbor and they go next door and start you know trying to set fire to their house, the right thing to do is to intervene and try to stop that from happening. It's just the moral thing to do. Is there risk involved for you? Yeah, there is. But from a moral, from a purely moral standpoint, a man cannot sit back and watch somebody else be victimized and and not stand up. You just can't. Okay, so from a moral standpoint, we ought to do something to support Ukraine. That doesn't mean we need to give them forty billion dollars, and we haven't, as I've just proven. But we ought to at least support them. We ought to do something from a moral standpoint. Okay. Morality is the purview of the citizen, not the government. So morality, it means it's my job to do the moral thing. It's your job to do the moral thing. The president's job is to do what's good for America. Okay, and and so morality, when it comes to what the government's job is, is to spend as little of our treasure to do the maximum to, to allow the maximum human flourishing in inside our country, okay? And and not waste our, our time and treasure, not waste our, our lives, waste our money. So they got to keep us safe. They got to give us roads to drive on and they've got to make a level playing field legally. That's pretty much all the government really is supposed to do. Yeah. So can you make a case for the United States being involved in Ukraine in some way 
that makes America safer. So there you have to ask yourself, all right, well, what happens if we do nothing? If we had done nothing, Russia would already be in charge of the entire country of Ukraine. Many more people would be under the persecution. I mean, again, go ahead, I'm not even going to talk about the moral aspect because we already did that. Mm-hmm. But, but so then you have to ask yourself, because that, that's a foregone conclusion. If we had not been involved, Ukraine would have fallen. And Russia would own Ukraine now. Would that make the world and therefore the United States a safer place or a more dangerous place? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty binary choice. And I would submit that the world would be a more dangerous place, a more risky place for America and Americans if Russia had more power, if they were emboldened. Because if they had been able to take Ukraine quickly, they would have been emboldened and they would have been planning their next move into into Lithuania or Poland or Latvia or Estonia or Moldova, one of their other one of the other places that is definitely on their list. And they've said so. Okay. And at what point does the United States then decide to get involved when they take Germany, (laughs) when they take, you know, France, when they take, uh, you know, really, how how far do they have to march across Europe before we start to see that this is a lot like World War II? This Mm -hmm. is a lot like 1939. Okay. Uh, we we tried that isolationist thing in World War II. It didn't work out so well for us. Eventually, they will come for us. Okay, and we have contractual obligations to the rest of Europe, NATO, to these NATO countries. So, if we had followed our contractual obligations, eventually we would have been pulled into conflict directly with Russia. Right now, we're involved in a proxy conflict with Russia believe i mean everybody knows yeah this is not a conflict between russia and ukraine this is a conflict between russia and and the west ukraine is the football they're the ones getting kicked around here Hmm. and they're also the ones doing all the fighting and it's better because russia's not going to nuke ukraine most likely but if russia goes to war with the united states and nato there's a good chance nuclear weapons end up getting used at some point because Russia will not lose that. They won't. They 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 will fight and fight and fight. But if it looks like they're going to lose, then they're going to get desperate. And and again, Vladimir Putin has been very clear about that that he would use nuclear weapons if he felt like the sovereignty of Russia was compromised. So, so again, uh, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. If we look at this from a purely you know, a global geopolitic political standpoint and say it is in America's best interest if Russia doesn't take over the world, then we need to support Ukraine in this. Do you, do I think that Joe Biden and the Biden administration are doing it for that reason? No, absolutely not. They are doing it because wartime presidents usually get a bump in their ratings. Mm-hmm. Vladimir Zelensky right now, his ratings are over 90%. Look where Biden's ratings are. Biden would love to get a few points by being a wartime president, but it's it's not working because people realize Biden's no leader, right? So even if, if the Biden administration does something that by accident is in America's best interests, I'm not going to be against it. Yeah. I'm, you know, I think, I mean, seriously, if you're, if you're just, if you're so wedded to your team that you are going to be against something that is probably good for America simply because of who sits in the White House and who's actually ordering it to be done, then I think you're as bad as Joe Biden. Is this uh, conflict? So I was just going to ask, is this conflict primarily? Uh, like a ground-based war, or is there air support involved too? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of befuddled. I'm not on one side or the other. I'm like, man, how the heck is Russia getting it handed to them? Are they, are they new, using no air support here? Are they just going, yeah, you know, tanks and troops and just strange. small arms? They're using very, very little air 
assets yeah. because every time they put it put anything in the sky over Ukraine, it gets shot down. Anything. I mean, they have been they've they've seen their their missiles shot down. They've seen their fighter jets shot down, and they've seen lots and lots of helicopters shot down. Hmm. Helicopters are low and slow, man. They get they get smoked in a hurry. Yeah, uh, I saw pieces. You probably saw that video right after the beginning of the war, where that helicopter was flying along and it just got creamed by a by a javelin, and it just went flaming fireball down to the ground. Mm-hmm. I saw the wreckage of that helicopter today. Uh, and and oh yeah, it's melted. <laughs> it's a it's in bad shape. Nah. Um, so they. They have made some sorties into Ukraine at night, mostly when they were firing missiles from aircraft, but they have pretty much used up all of their missiles now. They're actually, the the missiles that they're firing now are actually intercontinental ballistic missiles from the Cold War era. Hmm. They're, They're four to five ton missiles fired from a ship uh, and they're using them for sh- stuff that should be, you know, the, like a, a very much smaller missile, you know, uh, a Buka missile would, would do. Uh, that's a missile with a 23-pound warhead, mm-hmm. 23 pounds of explosive. But they're shooting a missile with that, that, that weighs four to five tons mm-hmm. because that's all they have left. And they have a lot of those. But they, uh, they're up from the Cold War, so they're not precision guided. They, they don't have GPS on them. Uh, it's all, you know, math to try to get them where they go. And so consequently, they're not able to hit what they're aiming at. And they're just destroying like apartment complexes and playgrounds and hospitals and and farmers fields. I saw a lady when we were down in the east last week outside of Kramatorsk who's she had one of these missiles land in her garden. And she had an Olympic-sized swimming pool hole in her garden. Wow. And it, it flattened her house, unfortunately, so she couldn't enjoy the pool. Um, but, uh, you know, this is a way to lose a war. You use up all your stuff on things that don't matter. They're, they're blowing up apartment complexes and, and playgrounds. I mean, I've literally seen five playgrounds so far in this war that have been hit with missiles. Mm-hmm. Playgrounds. They're not aiming at playgrounds. They're aiming at something else. But they're not able to hit what they're aiming at. They're so poorly trained and their equipment is so poorly made that they're not able to hit most of what they aim at. And so they've just expended all of their stuff on things that don't really matter from a tactical or strategic standpoint. Uh, So I think it's been really good for the U.S. military to have this happen because we've finally gotten a, a really close look at just how bad the Russian military actually is. And we've realized they're not near the threat everybody thought they were. If they went head to head with the U.S. military, even if we sent all our transvestites against them, <laughs> we would, we, we would, diversity is our strength. I mean, you know, um, we, if, if we sent, if they went head to head with the U.S. military, we would wax the, the Russian military in a matter of, a week or two we'd probably just just completely wipe them out because i mean i've Um, I've heard people make that argument too that they're just that russia is just sort of using all their their old stuff or their i I don't want to say mothballed stuff but not the good stuff they're just kind of playing this protracted war we'll we'll give them all the bad stuff and let them you know use all their force against that and then they're going to bring in the a team so to speak you know no no because I, I mean, the the stuff they were shooting at the beginning was actually precision guided, mm-hmm. and even that wasn't like American precision guided munitions. We can put it into a certain window of the house we're trying to hit. Yeah, Russian precision guided munitions, if they're lucky, might hit within a couple of blocks of the house they're trying to hit. Uh, their precision guided stuff was not very precise, and so they would have to fire if they really wanted to destroy something they'd have to fire a minimum of three missiles at it to get close enough to to wreck it Mm -hmm. um and we saw that with the tv tower here in kiev we saw it with the bridge that goes between odessa and romania that they hit uh, back a few weeks ago and they they had to 
keep firing missiles at it until they hit it. And they were hitting out in the bay. They were hitting in the water, in the woods. And they they finally hit it, you know, and destroyed it. But they're, like I say, their precision-guided stuff is not very precise. And you um, might not know this, but is, I'm, I'm guessing their drone technology is not up to par either. I'm guessing. I don't know. It's not like ours, but, I mean, a drone. it's harder to mess up a drone that you can get. Uh, off-the-shelf drone stuff that's pretty precise. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they've got those Orlon 10 drones and Orlon 12 drones that uh, can drop munitions. And that's actually probably the most uh, accurate precision stuff that they've got. The stuff that they're dropping are dumb bombs. But the drones fly lower and slower and, can, and have good optics, and so they can get right over top of what they're aiming at before they drop the the drone so i mean the the bombs so they're they're pretty good at hitting what they aim at with those 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 cause a lot of consternation out on the eastern front uh people are hiding from the drones a lot and shooting down quite a few of them too uh, but uh, russia doesn't have that many of those drones it's not mm. like they've got thousands and thousands of them uh, they they had the world's largest world war ii era military mm-hmm but if you but but their military was again it was World War II era. Matter of fact, just today, I saw some of the equipment that has been captured from Russian forces, and it looks like it came straight out of the 1980s, hmm. uh, almost all of it, uh, and it probably did. I mean, uh, there. Uh, I saw a med kit, you know, like the uh, we carry an IFAC individual first aid kit mm -hmm. and the stuff we've got has got quick clot in it. Quick clot is a high tech, you know, bandage that'll cause blood to clot right away. Oh, yeah. You know, we've got some high tech stuff in there that's all been developed since the beginning of the war on terror. And I saw a, a first aid kit that was captured off a Russian, Russian soldier today and it was it had the data manufacturer on it. It was manufactured in 1956. It had a leather uh, tourniquet. Yikes! In there, <laughs> yeah, amazing, amazing. Man. So, you know, they're they they do not have the capability to go head to head with a modern army. And if we can make Ukraine modern enough. That, that they're going to win. Now, there's a risk there, and there always is. There's two sides to everything. The risk is, it's not even a risk, it's a certainty. By flooding Ukraine with so much weaponry, some of it is bound to get captured, and it already has, has been, and some of it's bound to get siphoned off and sold, either by the Ukrainians or by the Russians. And those weapons are durable and fungible. And so eventually, someday, down the road, we don't know when, could be 50 years from now, the weapons that we've sent to Ukraine will be shooting back at us from someplace. Might be some completely different part of the globe. I know that because Border Patrol agents regularly capture weapons that you know come across from Mexico that literally we left in Vietnam at the end of the Vietnam War in the 1970s. And they've made their way around the world all the way to Mexico and are now shooting back at us. So that's just a certainty. It's going to happen. Um, and okay. I mean, that's we, we've got to, if we're not willing to accept that uh, some percentage of that is going to happen, then we shouldn't do it. But if we don't do it, then we have to accept what will happen if we we don't assist the, the Ukrainians in winning. The, and I think everybody kind of sees, I mean, even the, the generals at the Pentagon might be more concerned with transvestite rights and things like that. But I think that a, a blind general could see that this is an opportunity for the West to knock Russian capabilities down so far that they will not be a threat to us or the rest of the world for a generation. And we would be – this is an investment, uh, I think, is the way that the, the generals see it at the Pentagon. Yeah. That if we invest the, the technology now – and you can see what they're doing. They're investing it in a way that allows us to replenish our own stocks with better stuff. You know, we gave them $3.3 billion. We're going to give ourselves $9 billion to replace it. Um, so 
so this is an opportunity for them to invest in this crisis in such a way that will remove one of our greatest adversaries from the field of battle. And we'll also send a message to our greatest adversary, China, that if you thought Russia was, because China's military is about as big as Russia's and and at least as backwards, probably more so. Well, that's going to be They're my next question. Not. Where do you think China plays in all this? Are they going to buddy up with Russia to, to go against the U.S.? Or are they just going, man, Russia's a bunch of punks. Maybe we should go north. <laughs> yeah, no, they uh, they are watching very closely what's happening. And they have already pulled back from Russia and said, nah, we don't want to get hit with all those same sanctions and everything. And they have, they, you know, they have altered, let's say, their long-term plan toward Taiwan uh, because of what they see happening in Ukraine. That doesn't mean they're not going to invade Taiwan. They probably will. But they are trying to learn the lessons that Russia is learning the hard way and integrate them into their battle plan when it comes to Taiwan. So yeah. probably first they will try to somehow alienate Taiwan from the world body. Taiwan can't join NATO, right? Mm -hmm. But um, if they can make the world hate Taiwan for whatever reason, just like Russia worked very hard, even though pretty unsuccessfully, to convince the whole world that Ukraine was a a country of Nazis. Uh, On that note, because there are some people I'm sure watching your podcast that that Yeah, what's the take on that? that? Didn't mean to not get into that. I've been here since February 8th, almost nonstop, with a couple of short breaks. And I've looked all over this country, and I have yet to find a Nazi. Now, I would, my question has started to become this. When somebody says, oh, yeah, but they're just all a bunch of Nazis over there. Or, oh, what about the Azov Battalion? They're all Nazis. I say, what do you mean by that? What, what, what do you mean by Nazi? Are you meaning somebody who wants to murder all Jews? Because Ukraine's president is partially Jewish. Okay. And I haven't met anybody here who just outright hates Jews. I mean, I've I've asked. I've looked actively. Uh, Do you mean somebody who just, you know, hates hates the other race? This is a homogenous country. There are no other races here. It's all white people. And guess what? Russia is all white people, pretty much. Yeah. Right? So so it's not a racial thing. So what do you mean by Nazi? Define that term for me, and then I can tell you if there are any here. But I haven't found any traditional Nazis here. I've found nationalists, okay? A nationalist is somebody who says... Ukraine should be doing what's best for Ukraine. Ukraine should not be standing for Russia coming in and taking part of our country just because it's got a bunch of Russian speakers there. Those Russian speakers that are, you know, primarily in the Donbass region are there because Russians murdered four million of our grandparents in the Holodomor in the 1930s. And then there was nobody left to work the field, so the Russians forcibly relocated Russians into Ukraine to work the fields. Okay? Mm-hmm. So do do they have anything against the Russians? Well, yeah, some of them do. Some of them say, you know what? Those Russians don't belong here. They need to leave. But they were born here. Okay? So they have every right to be in Ukraine as well. Those Those people are about as close to Nazis as you're going to find here. But if you look at the reasons why they hate the Russians, as a people, you can kind of understand. Today, I went to a place that I would venture to say one in a thousand Americans has not heard of. Uh, okay, it's a it's a village just north of Kiev called Bikivnya. Bikivnya. You ever mm-hmm. heard of that? Never. You, no. I mean, who has, right? I'd never heard of it. I didn't even know it was there until I literally drove up to it today. 
And I wasn't even looking for it. I was looking for something else. And I was like, what is this place? You know, and because it's like a there's a monument there. And I'm like, you know, what is this? So I just looked it up. So the Holodomor, for those who don't know, is 19, the winter of 1932 and 33. The Russian, uh, under Stalin, the Soviet Union, <clears throat> decided Ukraine must produce a certain amount of grain so that we can say that our grain production is growing and we're outpacing the capitalists in, in America. So Stalin came up with an arbitrary number. They will produce this much grain no matter what. Well, there was a fam there. There was a drought, and the it, it was a you know hard winter, and so they they didn't have a good year for grain, and they didn't come anywhere close. I mean, nowhere close. It was like, I mean, it was like a twentieth, or, or I'm sorry, it was about a tenth of what they what Stalin expected, mm -hmm. and Stalin was so angry that he, he recruited all these people. He, he he started pitting people against each other and saying. Well, you poor peasants that live in in Ukraine, the reason that you don't that you're poor is because these middle class peasants. Middle class was if you have two cows, you know, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like rich. Okay, those people are called kulaks, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> the reason they have two cows is because they made it on the backs of the poor people. Where have you heard that before? <laughs> and they mm -hmm. started separating the kulaks from the the poor. They call they call the, the proletariat, and lo and behold, they start eradicating the kulaks, moving them out to Siberia, and then at some point, just literally shooting them. Yeah. Then the, the there was even less grain because there was less people to work the fields, and so Russia decided, you know what? To heck! I mean, this is Stalin <coughs> decided to heck with the. Uh, with the Ukrainians, they're just lazy. And he sent his people in and they literally came, went house to house and took every morsel of anything edible. They even had long poles that they pushed into the walls of people's houses to make sure they weren't hiding anything up in the roof or in the walls or, you know, any place. And if they found anything uh, that people had buried or whatever, they would take it or they would destroy it. And they literally left millions of people with nothing at all to eat in the middle of winter mm -hmm. and 4 million people died of exposure over that winter. Okay. We don't even learn about that in the United States, but what I found today in Bikivnia is completely separate. They called it the great terror when, you know, Stalin would just, he was rampaging through the Soviet Union. If you, if he was unhappy with you for any reason, any way, shape or form, if you didn't perform, if you didn't get your job done, if you, so if your neighbor didn't like you and went to the mayor of your town and said, this guy, I heard him saying something against the Soviet Union. They just come get you and your whole family. They, they'd ship you on a train out to Bikivnia and they'd shoot you and dump you in a hole. And this forest north of Kiev, just right north of Kiev, holds the bodies of 200,000 people that the Russians just murdered. There's there's 20,000 Polish people that they murdered in like at, all at one time. That's mm -hmm. a city. That's insane. And you've never heard of it. It's like you've heard of Auschwitz. You've heard of Dachau. <clears throat> this is every bit as bad as that. And you've never heard of it. And it's right there. I just I went to see it today. It's unbelievable. So, is this no a mass grave, or is it? Uh... Yeah, yeah. Well, there's it's hundreds of mass graves. They put about a thousand people in each grave, and there's two hundred they've found so far. So far, mm. it's just a big forest. Then they planted trees over it, so it's just a big pine forest. Yeah, and there's a, they have a memorial there now. This is not a tourist site. People don't go there for picnics. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't get visited very much, but they've they've memorialized it. And that's just what they've found so far. Um, so you don't have to look very far into Ukraine's history to understand why they don't like Russians. Because Russians have a very long history of annihilating Ukrainians, of, of perpetrating genocide against Ukrainians. Just this week, they found another mass grave in Bucha, just northwest of here, with seven people's bodies in it. And they'd all been had their hands tied and been blindfolded. They were shot in both knees. They were tortured. 
and then shot in the back of the head and dumped into a hole. And that was just a few weeks ago that that happened, right before the Russians pulled out. So Hmm. these people have heard the stories of the Holodomor from their grandparents. They've heard the stories of Bikinia, Bikinia from their grandparents. That went on all the way to the 1950s <laughs> during the Soviet times. They would just ship people out there in a train car and then machine gun them. So they've, this is like not only one generation removed really from current time. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're saying, here, here we go again. This is happening again. It's no wonder there are people in Ukraine who say, we hate Russians. Yeah. And if you want to call them Nazis, they don't care. <clears throat> they don't care if you call them Nazis. It's understandable. It, you know, should you murder your Russian neighbor just because he happens to speak Russian because his family was forcibly located, relocated to Ukraine in 1933? No, of course not. That guy's just as Ukrainian as you are just because his family, that'd be like, you know, uh, well, there's Mexican, there, there, you know, Arizona was once part of Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. So there's still families living there that were traditionally Mexican and they still hold on to that, that, uh, you know, ancestry. We don't have any right to go down there and, and murder them or kick them out of, of Arizona. They were there first. <laughs> it's okay. The people who live in the Donbass who speak Russian are no longer very partial to Russia. At one time they were, but they're not very partial to Russia because Russia came in and bombed the crap out of their houses. And now I just went down there. We were in um, in Kramatorsk, which is the county seat basically of the Donetsk province uh, just a few days ago. And all the wrote all the signs, the shops, on, you know, on the stores and everything, they're all in Russian because almost everybody that lived in Kramatorsk was from, of Russian descent. It's right smack in the middle of that area that I told, that I talked about, but they're Ukrainians and those people are pissed at Russia. They, they don't like Russia right now because Russia just bombed that place to smithereens. If you speak Russian, that the lady who had the Olympic sized crater in her garden, yeah, she, she talked to us in Russian and she said, I've lived here for 68 years. I remember the Soviet times. I remember how bad it was. And I don't want to go back to live it under Russian rule. Mm. Just the fact that she speaks Russian is just because of her heritage. That's all right. But so if, if you want to say the Azov guys and I've met a bunch of those guys and they're, they're not Nazis, they're just nationalists. But you could point to a lot of people who are, you know, MAGA, you know, uh, Trump voting people. And I mean, Trump's a nationalist. That's, that's there's nothing wrong yeah. with saying we should do what's best for our country. <laughs> Makes sense. That's that's, that's logic. Nationalist, right? Yeah, that's OK. And that's all these Ukrainians are saying. They're saying we should not uh, um, make deals with Russia that give up parts of our sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. That's all. Some of the people in that unit are saying, I would kill any Russian I find, even Ukrainian Russians. Those people are wrong. And almost everybody I've talked to, when you ask them about that, they say, yeah, that's wrong. They should, that shouldn't be. Those people shouldn't do that, right? So it's a very, very, very small minority. Uh, so there's one other issue we I got to go here pretty quick, but there's one other yeah. issue I want to touch on if you, you got you got time. Always and go that's, for it. Uh, that's the bioweapons labs that you've heard undoubtedly heard. Yeah, a lot I've about. heard a little yeah. about that too. That the we're just covering our own bioweapons labs over there in the Ukraine because we got forty some odd right. unsanctioned, unreally covered bioweapons labs, and that's yeah. what we're really doing. So I mean, I've done a lot of actual you know, investigative journalism on this to try to figure out what the truth is about these things. I've talked to people who are literally U.S. military people who were involved in the program that paid to support labs in Ukraine, mm-hmm. who came to Ukraine and helped set up the, those labs uh, or, or help improve them, not set up them, but improve them. 
So I've, I've spoken to people who are involved in the program, and these are people I trust that I know I've known well for many years. Uh, I have gone to the site of some of the labs that were listed on the U.S. Embassy's website before the war and, and actually inspected them, looked at them, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, I've also been to actual bioweapons labs in the United States at Fort Meade and uh, out in Dugway Proving Grounds, Utah. These things are typically put behind very high security fences because of what is what they have what they contain. Right. Yeah. Those fences usually have signs on them to say things along the lines of lethal force authorized for unauthorized, you know, entry, (laughs) stuff like that. And they're, they're, I mean, this is, we're talking about very, very dangerous biological toxins mm-hmm. that they're dealing with. So they, they don't want to put them, you know, they're not going to put it next to a, a playground. Yeah, I always think about the Andromeda strain, the old one from the 70s, where you go down different levels and the whole biohazmat That's right. Suits, they're yeah. all way deep underground, all that. Yep. Okay. The ones that I visited here in Ukraine are nothing like that. The the One of the sites that was on the list that I went to here in Kiev is a veterinary research clinic. It's in a residential neighborhood surrounded by high-rise apartment buildings, literally across the street. Okay, it has a it has a wrought iron fence that's about three feet tall around the thing that you could step a right step right over. The gate was open. I I opened the gate. I walked right up to the front front door. The front door was open. Walked in. Tried to talk to the secretary. She didn't speak English. Um. Did some more research and found out, aha, there's a new new wing on this lab. That wing was paid for by, US, by the U.S. government. Why? Why would we do that? Well, there is a program under the State Department. It's a defense research uh, program. Here's, here's, the, here's the idea that they had. There may be countries around the world who are trying to weaponize biological agents. And it would be really, really bad for America if one of those weaponized biological agents got released inside our country. And there are times when there are outbreaks of non-weaponized, but like Ebola and things like that. And it would be really nice to know about those outbreaks before to get some warning about them before they're on U.S. soil. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the idea is let's go to existing labs, which are already built all around the world in partner countries. And let's improve the capabilities of those labs, because those labs typically could tell you if this sample is anthrax. But they couldn't tell you if this was a naturally occurring anthrax that came out of the ground because anthrax exists on every farm, every farmyard in the world. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, or if it's a weaponized strain of anthrax that's been, you know, juiced up by a, a, a state actor. Mm-hmm. So we're going to improve their capabilities to allow them to tell the difference between those two things. And then sound the alarm if they find something that is, you know, actually a danger to the human race. And so they, they gave a couple million dollars to uh, these labs around Ukraine because Ukraine borders on Russia. So if Russia was creating, you know, some sort of really bad stuff and, and there's, I mean, there's precedent for this. Like we didn't have any way to measure radiation in uh, around Russia when it was the Soviet Union and Chernobyl happened and we didn't know about it until the radiation got to to Western Europe where it was already making people sick mm-hmm. and and of course Russia was denying the whole thing so uh, you know it, we were like hey it would be really good to have some advanced warning of some of these kinds of things and so they they improved the capabilities of these things to detect weaponized biological agents, not to create them, to detect them. If we were making a biological agent, first of all, that's against the Geneva Convention. But secondly, it would be in a deep underground bunker in the United States, surrounded by lots and lots of chain uh, of barbed wire and chain link fence with roving guards and everything and lots of protocols to keep that stuff from getting out. 
You're not going to put that in a developing country halfway across the world. It just wouldn't do it. Now, a lot of people have said, yeah, well, they did in Wuhan, China. Okay. Um, but that was coming point. out of UNC Chapel Hill. <laughs> that was in their bioweapon, not bioweapon, excuse me, out of their biomedical, and they don't have a chain link fence either. Yeah. 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 Good, good, good point. Good point. So, uh, you know, there is that. And so I, I'm, I'm just telling you what I have found. Yeah. And that is, and again, talking to people who are in the program and going to visit the sites. There have been thousands of journalists running all over Ukraine since the war began. Thousands of them. You would think if there were 46 bioweapons labs operating in Ukraine, somebody would have proof. Somebody would have gone to one of them and gotten pictures of it and put them out on the Internet. The one I went to, it was a veterinary research clinic. And I walked right in the front door. You can't do that at a bioweapons lab. Yeah. Okay. So I'm saying this is now. Now, we do know that Russian state media has been talking about American funded bioweapons labs in Ukraine for a long, long time. So if Americans are getting the idea that we have those things, it's probably coming from Russian state media, which we know for a fact is corrupt. It's it's. It's propaganda. It's propaganda so for a reason. There was yeah. A, yeah, the most recent missile that landed in Kramatorsk landed between two apartment buildings in a very narrow space between two apartment buildings. There's a little common area there with a kid's playground. And this massive missile landed there and put about a 20-foot crater in the ground. And the only thing it destroyed was some natural gas pipes that go to to feed natural gas to all these buildings in the neighborhood to heat them in the mm -hmm. wintertime. <clears throat> so there's a little like switching station there in a, a building about the size of a bedroom or something, a little concrete building that had, that held the, the, the switch for all those natural gas pipes Yeah, blew that up. And Russian state media claimed that that missile had blown up an American bioweapons lab in Kramatorsk. Well, that I was going to be my it. other point. I mean, if they're so important, they sure don't seem to be targeting these important hotspot targets at all. So I don't know. <laughs> Must well, not I be that. see it. Yeah. And there was no bioweapons lab there. <laughs> and it was right next to a playground. And there was a and there was apartment buildings on both sides. I mean, you wouldn't put a bioweapons lab there. I'm sorry. Yeah. So so this is absolute propaganda. And it's amazing how people are so wedded to that story. That even I'm sure you will get comments from from your viewers saying Chuck Holton doesn't know what he's talking about. But I'm telling you, I was there. I went and saw it with my own eyes. If there was a bioweapons lab there, I would tell you. I I don't have any reason not to, not to. I'm not wedded to the fact that that Ukraine is lily white. I've been doing a lot of reporting lately on the corruption that existed in Ukraine and still exists, and what that looks like, what form that takes for the people who live here. And it's it's a fascinating story that'll come out this this coming week, but I mean, so I'll, that's that's where we are with that. I like your point as far as just having these labs closer in proximity to the enemy, so to speak. So I mean, it would make sense to put them on the border of Russia. I would hazard a guess there's probably some similar labs in South Korea or Laos or what have you around the perimeters of North Korea and China. I don't know. That would just make sense. But yeah, I, I'm wondering if China, if the Wuhan lab was designed to be one of these labs because China's shares a border with Russia, mm -hmm. but then the Chinese repurposed it and tried to make weaponized flu virus. And it, that's why it got out because it, it wasn't designed. That lab wasn't designed to be making weaponized virus. And I mean, if it was designed to make weaponized virus, you can bet there'd be better security on it. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's just a guess. That's a wild guess, but I mean, it just seems to be logical to me. But yes, and as a matter of fact, this program that did these labs all over the world actually saved the United States from ha having to destroy almost all of our cattle during the uh, hoof and mouth or foot and mouth disease when the outbreak in mm -hmm. the UK. Yeah, the UK had to massacre all their cattle 
because of that. And we were able to catch it in time to stop imports from the UK and keep it from coming to the United States. So it actually helped us. That's amazing. Well, Chuck, I know you got to go. It's been so awesome to touch base with you. Just talk to you again. What's the best place people can follow your work, can support you in any way they can? How can they do it? ChuckHolton.Locals.com and it is a good place to go to kind of – I aggregate most of what I do there. And then, uh, of course, you can Google me on or, or look me up on YouTube. I, I do my podcast on YouTube uh, on a consistent basis, so semi-consistent, three times a week. Uh, that sounds there, good. So. I can't believe that's, they haven't taken you down yet for Pizza X. I'm glad they haven't, though. Uh, several, several things have been taken down. Uh, I've been I've been forced to go through the re-education a couple times and, and promise to be a good boy and that sort of thing. But uh, it comes with territory, right? Yeah, indeed. Well, if you'll stick around for about 30 seconds, I'll say goodbye to you on the other end. I'm just going to close things up here. Okay. All right, folks, yeah. if you missed any of that, please check out anomicage.com. That's A-N-O-M-I-C-A-G-E dot com. You can find today's episode and all the past as well. Chuck's been on here once before, so you can find that previous episode also. As always, you can't do everything, but you can do something, so be safe out there. I'll be seeing you sooner than later in the Anomic Age. Thank you for listening to The Anomic Age, a John Age project. For past shows, further info, and to comment, go to anomicage.com. That's A-N-O-M-I-C-A-G-E dot com. Till next time, thank you for listening to The Anomic Age.